Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, navigating the new normal presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and technology, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plout. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a motto of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, online and donate at afrmc.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on you, our audience's support, to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. At this moment in time, we ask that you consider a donation to Israel's Rabin Medical Center as it treats wartime casualties and is in desperate need of your help. And now on to today's program. This month's Global Connections topic is freedom of speech on campus. We thank our special guests, Talia Dror, student leader of Cornelians for Israel, Professor Susanna Heschel, chair of Jewish studies at Dartmouth College, and Kenneth Stern, director of the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. In past panels, we've discussed the recent increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. Uh, there have also been polls showing that support for Israel, uh, while it's greater among older Americans, uh, it's it's been losing out among younger adults. And it's no surprise to me that politics on college campuses can be more passionate and performative than carefully reasoned. I cut my teeth on the college radio station anchoring coverage of the big 1968 protests at Columbia University. But having experienced all that and knowing all that, the situation on many campuses since October 7th has still been surprising, certainly for me. Jewish students describe feeling afraid. Uh, Israel's military action against Hamas, designed to degrade and decapitate, uh, if not entirely eliminate, the Islamist group, has prompted loud protests against Israel, in particular on several elite campuses. There are claims and counterclaims over rights to free speech when it comes to Israel, Hamas, and Gaza. Uh, critics of Israel say they're exercising their freedom of speech. Many Jewish students say they're being denied the very freedom uh, to live and to study without fear. In this hour, we'll explore questions of free speech on campus with three panelists. Uh, I'll interview each first, uh, and then we'll have a discussion session in the second half hour. 
Uh, you can take part in that discussion center by submitting a question uh, by using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Our first panelist is one of those Jewish college students I spoke of. Talia Dror is in her final year at Cornell School of Industrial Labor Relations. Uh, she is also minoring in business and legal policy and is a member of Cornelians for Israel. Talia Dror was one of three students who co-authored an op-ed for the New York Times uh, with the headline, What is Happening on College Campuses is Not Free Speech. Talia Dror, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for having me on. And I, I'd like you to begin by telling us what you experienced at Cornell uh, after the Hamas attack on towns and uh, kibbutzim near Gaza. Right. So that's a pretty loaded question. Yeah. Uh, it's been 60 days since then. And the amount of sheer anti-Semitism we've seen unfold on our campus is abhorrent. Uh, it started with uh, actually resolution that was entered by the Student Assembly which I did speak about at the hearing, in which um, the LGBTQ representative on the Student Assembly introduced a bill that essentially glorified Hamas as resistance fighters and placed full blame for the October 7th attacks on Israel. Uh, since then, we've seen numerous protests done by the Students' Justice for Palestine group on our campus, uh, in which they have chanted anti-Semitic phrases like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They've chanted for antifadas. Um, they have been essentially tormenting students on campus by graffitiing all over campus saying Zionism equals genocide and antifada now. Um, these are direct threats to Jewish students on campus. Uh, about, I think it was, no, we ended up getting um, death threats on an anonymous platform mm. with um one radical student who unfortunately was facing dire mental health um situations who had essentially posted on an anonymous posting platform saying that he was going to kill all jews on our campus and rape all jewish girls and shoot up the kosher dining hall and for jewish living uh obviously they sent shockwaves Throughout our community, students were genuinely afraid to go to classes. We had students attending Zoom classes only for about a week or so. Um, it was funny, though, because Students Justice for Palestine condemned anti-Semitism and then immediately resumed to call for the elimination of the state of Israel and all 7 million Jews inside of it. Uh, most recently, the Students Justice for Palestine group occupied student buildings. Uh, they slept in student buildings and defaced our main building on campus with Palestinian flags replacing the American ones and putting posters all over the front of our mm -hmm. main building on campus. Mm -hmm. um, upon speaking with the administration, the administration has said that they are not going to receive any consequences for their various rule violations. Talia, let me ask you two questions. Uh, First, did the intensity of this uh, anti-Israeli and you would say anti-Semitic reaction uh, to uh, October 7th, first of all, did it surprise you or did it confirm your your uh, understanding of what opinions were among your fellow students? And second, do you think it reflected a majority of Cornell students uh, in, in, in what you were hearing? So first, I wasn't surprised. Um, unfortunately, anti-Israel sentiment has been vocal on campuses for a long time. 
professors feel emboldened now to speak against Israel and to speak in anti-Semitic fashions in their classrooms. And right now what they're doing is using their captive audiences to preach their terrorist sympathies. And they are empowering students to spread these anti-Semitic, anti-Israel rhetoric. Um, and then in terms of the majority of students mm-hmm. feeling this way, I mean, my 51% of students believe that Hamas is a resistance or 51% of the people in my generation, Gen Z, believe that Hamas is a resistance force. I would hope for more moral clarity, but I don't think that's the case. Uh, were you concerned for your physical safety during that time? Yeah, absolutely. I received death threats. I, I believe uh, I you may have testified to this, but your dorm room uh, at Cornell has has a mezuzah. It's, it would be identified as the home of a of, of a Jewish student. That's correct. And I live with two other student leaders who are prominent in the community. And in in even in your in your room, uh, were you concerned, afraid? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to ask you about one thing you said, which was which uh, has engendered a tremendous amount of discussion, which is this: from the river to the sea. Uh, this is a a, uh, a pro-Palestinian chant slogan, uh, which would presumably mean uh, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. Uh, only Palestine is the is the is the implication. Since it would wipe out Israel, it's received as an anti not just an anti-Zionist but an anti-Semitic statement. I have to confess, I first heard that from the river to the sea as a statement of the the uh, where there would be necessarily only one sovereignty, Israeli sovereignty. It was a Likud Likud party position from their from their founding, and and I wonder what what you say to someone who says, well. I don't think the Israelis are that eager to have another sovereign nation between the river and the sea. What's the difference between the Israeli position and what the pro-Palestinians are saying? It's a really great question. I think the pro-Palestinian from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, was initially from the river to the sea, Palestine will be Arab. It was then adopted by multiple recognized terror organizations and used in their efforts to eliminate Jews. And I think that the difference between those two phrases of from the river to the sea is under one phrase, Jews will be eliminated. And under the other one, everyone will live under sovereign equal citizenship. So, I mean, currently you have, what, two million Arab Israelis as citizens of Israel? Yeah. I I can't see uh, any Jews being left by Hamas, considering their vile and disgusting anti-Semitic brutal attacks. Whereas I can see equal citizenship being given to by by an Israeli ruled from the river to the sea. Uh, I've read some some uh, columns in the in the Cornell Daily Sun, which have been written by their guest columnist, an English professor who's been teaching at Cornell for 56 years. Uh, Daniel Schwarz, uh, who describes himself as a, a Jew and an, uh, an advocate of a two-state solution, a supporter of Israel and all that. Uh, he deplores the acts of, of uh, and statements of anti-Semitism. But he did write this, the campus, meaning Ithaca, uh, has not devolved into chaos, nor has anyone been physically harmed. 
uh, despite a fraught environment, most faculty and students have been going to classes and doing what they usually do. Yes, Jewish students have felt uncomfortable, especially before the student culprit was arrested, but almost all attended and kept up with classes. Does that does that describe more or less to you? Does that square with your sense of, of the campus as we're about two months away from October 7th? Interesting. I'm really glad he feels that way uh, because yeah. most Jewish students that I've spoken to and most students large don't feel the same way, especially after what happened this past weekend with students sleeping in school buildings and violating policies and the clear showing of the administration's double standard in terms of addressing these things. This has turned not only into a Jewish issue, but a widespread issue of students coming to realize, not only students, I'm sorry, students and parents coming to realize that our universities are devolving into places where anti-American, anti-Semitic, and anti-humane rhetoric has been spreading and everyone is getting uncomfortable, both my non-Jewish and my Jewish friends. Talia Dror of Cornell, thank you. Stay with us because we're going to have a, a discussion period in about 20 minutes. But uh, first, we're going to turn to our second panelist, uh, Professor Susanna Heschel of Dartmouth. Uh, she is chair of Jewish studies there, and she has a close relationship with the Dartmouth's Middle East Studies Department. Uh, that relationship came into play uh, after October 7th, as we'll hear in a moment. Far from New Hampshire right now, she's in Warsaw. Uh, uh, actually based right now in Berlin in a, in a course that she teaches for uh, for Dartmouth. She's a historian and a scholar of, among other things, the history of anti-Semitism in Germany, which could be germane. Uh, Professor Heschel, thanks for joining us. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. Uh, describe your, your reaction to the attacks on October 7th and what you did about it. So I was, of course, devastated and shocked and horrified and terrified. And I think for a long time, I felt a very odd combination of despair and rage simultaneously. But that weekend, I uh, decided I should have a faculty gather over lunch, uh, perhaps on Tuesday in our seminar room, people from my building, just to talk with each other. And then I got a call from my colleague who's chair of Middle Eastern Studies and he was in Cairo leading a Dartmouth program, and he called me, and he was terribly upset by what had happened on October 7th, the attack, the terrorist attack against Israel. Uh, his name is Tarek el and he grew up in Beirut during the Civil War. He's actually is a forthcoming memoir about it. And But he was devastated, and he told me that the social media in the Middle East was horrifying to him, what people were saying, horrible. So I told him about the lunch and he said, make it bigger, open it to everyone. So we did. And so on Tuesday and Thursday of that week, we set up a faculty forum. Four of us on the faculty at Dartmouth came to answer questions and to talk with students. It was open to all the students, faculties and faculty came. Turns out we ended up uh, with hundreds attending in person and thousands on the live stream. So we answered questions, but I think what was most important was that we as faculty modeled something for the students. We demonstrated to them how we speak to each other in academic terms with collegiality, with respect. And certainly nobody on that panel was anything but devastated by the horrific attacks. Uh, but we were also made it clear to the students that we're not here to 
to blame, but to learn. That's what they should be here to do and not to litigate the past, but to think about the future. Mm-hmm. But we created, I believe, an atmosphere of calm. There were student vig- prayer vigils held uh, on campus in subsequent days and weeks, uh, but we did not have the kind of horrific incidents that took place at Cornell and so many other schools. I've heard you say that the close connection between you and Jewish studies at Dartmouth and the Middle East studies at Dartmouth is unusual. Why is it unusual? Why should there be a gap there? It is unusual. And frankly, it shouldn't be unusual. It should be commonplace. And I don't know why it isn't commonplace everywhere. But I can tell you that I have colleagues in Jewish studies who say they have receive no response when they reach out to their colleagues in Middle Eastern studies. It's as if there's a war on certain campuses. And that's not what we have at Dartmouth. We cross-list our courses, we co-teach, we co-sponsor lectures and workshops. Uh, we, We are working with reasonable people who are concerned and humane and engaged. And we feel that when we do teach courses that are on delicate topics, such as, for example, the course in anti-Semitism, but also we just have a course now in the 1967 about Israel and Palestinians. We co-teach. We have two professors in the classroom, and I think that generates a different atmosphere, and that's what should be done. So a lot of this depends on individual faculty. And you don't get accused of false equivalence in that case by by having two professors? No, it's not about false equivalence. It's about demonstrating how we speak about these issues and how to keep calm. What are the academic questions? What's the research that we need to do? How can we understand something better? And two in the room makes a difference for the atmosphere. One aspect of free speech on campus is what uh, activists and students say and where you draw the line between speech that should be disciplined and speech that's disturbing, but, uh, you know, someone has a right to it. And another dimension is, is just what faculty uh, uh, say in the classroom and feel feel uh, uh, free to say. Do you, do you feel any constraint about your, your, your thoughts about the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians? Or should you feel some restraint about expressing your thoughts about Israelis and Palestinians? Yes, I do. Because I believe there's a difference between private life and public life. I have private thoughts and I speak to my friends and my family, but I also have a professional career. And as a professional, whether someone is a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, whatever it is, I don't want to know the private thoughts. I want someone who will behave with professionalism and with dignity. And that's my obligation as a professor. I don't believe professors should be ranting and raving on campus as some of them have done. I find it outrageous and insulting to the university community when, for example, at at Cornell, Russell Rickford said he was exhilarated by October 7th. What kind of a person is that, first of all? And what's the message to the students? It's like putting a sign and students should not take a class with me. And I can tell you with Dartmouth, students don't like that kind of person and that kind of behavior. In your scholarly career, uh, you've written about anti-Semitism in Germany. Uh, speaking as someone of Russian Jewish ancestry, uh, I grew up hearing about the folly of German Jews, uh, as, as my father would tell it, uh, people who believed in the acceptance that they enjoyed only to discover they were then ruled by the most vile anti-Semites and uh, 
that, that we've ever seen. Should we be hearing in the anti-Israel outbursts these days the the, uh, the sound of broken glass in, in, in the distance, or is this something obviously less calamitous than that? In some ways more calamitous because the feeling that I have right now is that the whole world has gone mad. Mm -hmm. It's not confined to a particular place and it's not confined to a particular segment of society. Now, of course, I also don't think that Jews are to be blamed for anti-Semitism, whether it's Jews in Germany for the Nazis or whether it's Jews in France for the Dreyfus Affair, whether it's Jews in Iraq for having been exiled from Iraq and so forth. But the rise of anti-Semitism right now is horrifying. It's coming at us from every possible direction. And I am very concerned about what can be done at this point and how long this kind of hysteria, it's a hysterical anti-Semitism, it's a kind of madness. How long will this persist? Decades? Generations? I'm not sure, but it's shocking. It's horrifying. And of course, Israel was always the promise, the answer, the antidote will go to Israel. But then came October 7th, and now Jews feel even Israel isn't safe. Sir, uh, Susanna Heschel, thank you. And stick with us, because in 10 minutes, we'll bring all of you back. But uh, we're going to turn now to our third guest. Uh, our third panelist is Kenneth Stern, uh, who is a writer, lawyer, director of Bard College's Center for the Study of Hate. Uh, over the years, he has studied hate, uh, as it appears in American militias, on talk radio, as well as on campus. Uh, and one aspect of his work that's especially relevant these days to what we're talking about was his role as a drafter of the working definition of anti-Semitism, which is also called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance Definition of Anti-Semitism. Uh, Ken Stern, welcome. It's always good to, to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you. The working definition, which for shorthand I'll call the IHRA, has been uh, approved by the European Parliament, by uh, many other bodies. Its, it's examples of anti-Semitism include some criticisms, certain kinds of criticisms of Israel. The chanting about Palestinians being free from the river to the sea is by definition uh, an anti-Semitic chant. Um, well, first, it's not necessarily anti-Semitic. There are certainly anti-Semites who use that. Um, certainly when Hamas uses it, it is. You don't need a definition to know that. Um, but there are some people for whom the idea of, especially when you're talking about 18, 19, 20-year-olds on a college campus that may have this idea that, well, you know, one person, one vote, let's have, you know, from one side to the other. Your point about Likud um, as a, you know, as using that phrase too in a different way. Um, so I don't see it as necessarily anti-Semitic. Uh, the definition, however, um, was put together primarily uh, to help European data collectors figure out how to put reports about anti-Semitism uh, together in, after the Second Intifada. And there were examples about language about Israel because we saw, as we're seeing now, a correlation with some types of speech and attacks on Jews. Not to say that there was a causation, but a correlation. But it was never intended to be used, as some are trying to use it now, as a hate speech code uh, to define what could be said on campus and, and what can't. And part of the problem for me studying hate is that people get into these binary boxes where they see something that disturbs them, their identity, they want to uh, 
justice on one side, injustice on the other, want to label something, want to make complicated things simple. And people are trying to use this definition to say, okay, well, there's certain speech that we shouldn't allow, uh, and that's the end of it. And, you know, what you hear from students, from people like Susanna, who are very invested in in teaching, is that we want to use um, the educational system, the capacity to mine these issues, why people have these different points of views, to understand, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's driving them to put yourself in, in their minds and to understand, you know, how how do you teach? I mean, Bard, we're going to do a class in the spring instead of having just these words flung around like anti-Semitism, genocide, settled or colonialism. What do they mean? How do we study them? How do we understand them? So to the extent that we can, um, you know, look at the complexities and take people out of these binary boxes, the better. But the definition is being used to say, let's put something on one side of a line or another and then move on. And we miss all the important things we can do on a campus to fix the climate and to educate people uh have you have you developed for yourself a clear sense of where the line is between disturbing speech that's that's uh, critical of israel or of supporters of israel and speech that uh, either becomes hate speech or or uh, uh, becomes action in itself uh, is is there some line in your head that's the out of bounds line here that's a great question. So to me, the, the the difference is between expression on one side, which could be done by speech, but could also be done by other things, art and other ways, and intimidation, harassment, bullying and discrimination. Um, so if somebody wants to get up and say, you know, from the river to the sea, or I think all, you know, fill in the blanks, Jews in this case, but blacks or gay people or transgender, whatever, to die, it depends on you know the context. If I could say that as an expression, it should be condemned. Uh, people should you know talk about why this is problematic and organize around it. But to give the campus the ability to say that when you say certain things, even things that we may find very very hateful, um, that that's going to put you in a problem where you're going to have a disciplinary effect. Um, that does a number of things. First of all, it puts the people that are being targeted for their speech as free speech martyrs. It changes the discussion again about how the campus should be thinking about these issues. Um, and it, it uh, you know, undermines the ability, I think, to teach. And, and just, you know, one thing to say, too, is, that, is you know, from the the book I put together three years ago when I mm-hmm. saw these issues, mm-hmm. um, it's not just on one side. We've seen you know, the, what we're talking about now with the uh, anti-Zionism and Jewish students and you know, the boycott and the hecklers and so forth. Um, but when I talk to Palest- pro-Palestinian professors in, in the last few weeks, uh, they tell me they too are having students coming into the door crying, that they're being called terrorists. They're seeing, uh, you know, uh, trucks going around in Columbia and Harvard doxing students, um, students for justice in Palestine, Brandeis, you know, just for its expression, stopped. Um, you know, that's a that's a problem too. When we try to silence each other, from things that we find disturbing, mm-hmm. uh, we're doing no one any favors. Um, on the questions, one of the questions that's arisen since uh, October seventh was, was what should university presidents uh, say about uh, about October seventh? 
which raises a question for my mind. Do we expect, should we expect university presidents to announce the position of uh, the university on uh, what the Chinese are doing to the uh, Uyghurs or what the Russians are doing in Ukraine or what the, what Hamas is doing in uh, in Gaza. Uh, what What is your answer to that? Yeah, I think you know, this, this moment uh, reflected the wisdom of something called the Calvin Report from 67 from the University of Chicago that said universities should not be making statements about, you know, public issues uh, in general. Um, because we see, you know, what happens in a situation like this, it gets picked apart. Uh, it's either not strong enough on one side or the other side, or it's not, if it's strong on the side that I agree with, it's not in the same words that I would want. Um, and then the issue becomes one of, of what the president said, as opposed to what the campus is doing, like with Susanna and others did at, at Harvard. So again, it's putting people in the binary of a simple uh, thing. I thought the the, the best statement um, that I saw was from Maud Mandel at Williams, which was a detailed statement about why she wasn't putting out a statement, but really stressing the things that were important, um, that we understand that students are in a moment of stress, that we uh, understand students may have family and people they care about in Israel and in Gaza, and we recognize that. We're doing vigils, we're doing forums like Susanna and others have done, and we've done some at Bard as well um you know so the the only time i think a statement that could come out about an incident that's political uh like this should be you know to ratify that students are recognized and feeling heard and also to talk about the importance of academic freedom and expectations again not going to be any harassment not going to be any intimidation but we're going to mind why students have the you know difficult um uh, different opinions and creative avenues for them to explore it. Those types of statements are okay. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, the a college president is not the equivalent of a State Department. Yeah, I, I, I've heard it described as the Chicago approach that uh, mm -hmm. I don't know how accurate it is today, but the idea that the university per se and the university president should not be expressing uh, positions on great issues to precisely to leave members of faculty free to express whatever they wanted and uh, they were they were all individuals the institution wouldn't uh, that that's right but you know but one of the criticisms i mean this is you know post george floyd when a lot of college presidents started making statements and so, you know, now we're at a moment where we see the, I mean, everybody agreed that what, what the officer did with the video of the George Floyd was awful. But this is uh, uh, an issue where people have strongly divergent views of the justice on one side or the other. I have my own views, but I know others have different views. And for a college to, you know, come down on a, a you know, on a political issue like there's problems of doing that and the wisdom of the Calvin Report from Chicago so many years ago. Yeah, today, today's uh, polemics about Israel and, and the Palestinians sent me thinking back uh, about 60 years ago uh, to a time when uh, uh, Arabs uh, frequently argued that uh, none of today's Jews, certainly not in Israel, are actual Jews, that they're all descended from converts of the Khazar tribes in Central Asia. And it was it was routinely put out by the Israeli government that being a Palestinian was a made-up uh, identity that uh, really was, a, 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 you know, people thought of themselves as South Syrians before Jews came along, and they made up an identity just to, just to bother the Jews. So at, at some level, we've, we've come some ways from two people 
two peoples both saying to each other and their supporters saying, you're a complete fraud and a fake. You don't, you don't exist as a people whom I have to confront and I have to deal with. And I, absolutely right. And that's the binary in this. Again, just seeing one narrative as being you know, legitimate uh, as opposed to finding a way to have empathy for all people with you know, the different narratives. And in my book, it was, it was interesting because I decided I had to have a chapter about what are the narratives. So I had the, the Israeli Jewish narrative that, um, you know, we all know from the connection to the land and the, you know, the history and the synagogues facing Jerusalem and all that, all that. And then I had the Palestinian narrative, uh, which was, you know, basically they were always there. Jews were a minority. Others started coming in at late 1800s. And then I had somebody look at the draft of the chapter and she said, you know, it really is important which one you put first. And I thought about that. And I put mm -hmm. the the Jewish Israeli one because that's the one that I believe and I'm most comfortable with. But then I had a long footnote and said, but um, imagine if I, if you're Israel supportive like I am, and imagine if I had started with the Palestinian narrative and started talking about, mm -hmm. you know, the, this just the Palestinian story and the Jews were brought in as secondary characters to try to undermine our ability to control our lives. How would that make you feel? And that's how a lot of the pro-Palestinian folks feel. And what we have is the, you know, two narratives that are not intersecting, but just going right past each other. And I think the point of education is to make it so that people can entertain both simultaneously. They can have their views about which is the more just, but they should understand that both of them exist and are credible. Ken Stern, thanks a lot. Stay with us. I'd like to welcome back Professor Susanna Heschel and uh, Talia Dror from, from Cornell. Uh, and invite people uh, who are listening if they want to submit a question using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. I'd just first like to ask each of you, um, and we'll start with you, Talia, from what you've heard from your fellow panelists, just very briefly, whether there's something that you'd like to, to remark on that you've heard from, uh, from the others. And Talia, since you went first, you can go first with this round. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely think there's something to be said for open discussion and free inquiry. I mean, the reason I pay to go to the institution I currently attend is to engage with people who have different views than me, who grew up with different narratives and have different perspectives and to share that. But what we're seeing right now is because of the sheer amount of force and inability to sit down with peers who have different views, everyone sees this as an environment of intimidation. And one group's free speech rights has been limiting the other group's free speech rights. And so it is within the freedom of speech and freedom of protest of any pro-Palestinian group to call for an intifada. But if that, the call last week that was made was intifada, intifada from Gaza to Ithaca, calling for an intifada on my campus, calling for terror attacks on Jewish students on my campus. Now, the university recognizes that as free speech. But that free speech inherently undermines my personal free speech as a Jewish student, because now mm -hmm. I feel uncomfortable to hang a mezuzah up, which is within my religious free speech rights. I feel uncomfortable saying that I'm a Zionist because I'm afraid I'll be targeted and killed. Mm -hmm. So while I do respect free speech, I think it's having an adverse effect right now. We're going to come back to uh, 
to the word intifada in, in, in just a moment. But first, uh, Susanna Heschel, uh, anything you'd like to remark on from what you've heard from your fellow panelists? Yes, well, I very much appreciate what Taya said. I actually don't think it's about free speech because I think it's really about the fact that most administrators don't seem to know what Jewish history is or what, as was my impression after listening to the three presidents who testified yesterday before Congress. But certainly to say intifada would be to me the equivalent of a student running around calling for lynching of African-Americans. And in fact, for that matter, there have been incidents in which a noose is hung from a tree at a university in the United States, and those students are condemned immediately by the administration. And that's a symbolic act. It's not verbal, but hanging a noose is a very powerful threat, and mm -hmm. it's a racist threat. And intifada, calling for intifada, is calling for violence, is calling for murder. Now, why is that any different? Why should that not be immediately condemned? It has nothing to do with free speech. That's to do with this is a private, this is a campus, a college. You don't say certain things. You don't, as the Supreme Court say, you don't cry fire in a crowded movie right. theater. Uh, and Ken Stern, reactions to your Yeah, I, I, listen, I, I, I understand and I appreciate, and if I were, you know, in a situation with, where, you know, there were calls, especially um, the, you know, what was after the colon in, in the way that was implied uh, by Talia, you know, to target Jews on campus, that would clearly be something that would be a direct threat. I don't know what all students may mean by intifada. I know what I hear, what it, what it means, what Susanna hears and what Talia hears. Um, but you know the the question is again what you would want um an, a college administrator to do about policing uh speech if it's just saying something that we find is awful um and you know that other students are feeling something threatened by it but it's not a, a true threat because it's just an expression you say things that that ratify the fact that all the student, jewish students should built on this campus uh years ago I did a report on bigotry on campus, and the question I asked is, you know, what would you do if a person put a sign that said, you know, so-and-so, whatever group is not welcome on this campus on a dorm, and there was no rule against putting, uh, you know, signs on dorms, and one of the college presidents yeah. said, I would put a bigger sign on my office that said, everybody welcome here. So I think if you answer speech with speech, the idea that you try to, to regulate what speech and to get into the minds of people, unless it comes in the context that it's actually a true threat or harassment or directed in emails or uh, to somebody in the dorm, uh, I think you have to allow it and teach about it. Professor Hesh shaking her head vigorously, so I'll give you a moment here. Yes. So, first of all, the, the what Taya has described, the kind of behavior at Cornell University is not just a question of whether it makes Jewish students feel it is an insult to the university and everything the academic world stands for, the values and the principles, and in no way should it be allowed. And that's why when someone finds a noose hanging at a university, it's immediately condemned. It's not about Black students feeling unsafe. It's an mm -hmm. antithetical to a university. So that's that. Now, when it comes to the term intifada, if somebody calls for a boycott, a boycott is not a threat of violence. An intifada is a threat of violence. There is no such thing as intifada yeah. without violence. So if someone says, okay, I'm going to boycott Israel, and I'm not going to buy, I don't know, orange Jaffa oranges, fine. You can do that's your business. 
you if you really want to boycott, you're going to have to give up your computer. You're going to have to give up your iPhone because they contain technology that's produced in Israel. You have to give up a driverless car also because that was also invented in Israel by Amlan Shashua. So is, is, yeah. to, to boycott is passive. To threaten with intifada, every university should condemn it outright. It's the same as calling for lynching. What's the difference? Would you discipline a student? Would you expel a student? Would you I would create a, a list of... Yes, I would, I would or at the very least suspend a student for a year and say, look, I'm not sure you understand what a university is all about, that this is not behavior or thinking or like kind of language that we tolerate here. I'd also like to add, I apologize, yes. I'd like to add that within the values of every university, there are certain core values that are stated, one of them being a community of belonging, another being freedom of speech. But the second that freedom of speech value starts to impede on the community of belonging value, people need to be reprimanded and disciplined. And also, I, I didn't like a lot of what Claudine Gay said yesterday in her testimony. Mm -hmm. But something she did say is that the way to fight hatred is with truth. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of misinformation being spread on campus. Students spreading misinformation should not be given the platform to do so. Yeah. That is the university's right to not give them the time or place and restrict their freedom of speech to spread lies. Let me just interrupt here to, to say, first of all, uh, Claudine Gay is the president of Harvard University. Uh, she appeared at a hearing along with the presidents of MIT and Penn, uh, the House uh, uh, committee hearing that was looking into anti-Semitism on campus. Uh, Representative Elise Stefanik of New York, an upstate uh, New York uh, uh, Republican, uh, questioned them, and she was the one who put the intifada question. But in the course of in the course of posing it uh, to them, uh, she she defined intifada as a call for armed resistance that in, that calls for genocide of of Jews. And um, and I had to think about that uh, for a while because uh, uh, actually in 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 my years overseas and on short trips overseas. Uh, the Middle East wasn't the only conflict zone that I that I saw, and um, there were uh, uh, there were times when the provisional IRA in Northern Ireland would conduct what might be the equivalent of of an intifada, an uprising over the the sovereign authority in in, in Northern Ireland, and there was murderous. They, they these were not good guys. They were they were they were uh, violent guys, but I didn't think it was genocidal. I didn't think that their their aim was to wipe out all of the Protestants uh, in, in Northern That's Ireland. not, I, I understand, <laughs> but Intifada, whatever Representative Stefanik understands, Intifada is about armed resistance, about physical yeah. violence, yes. not yeah. just a boycott or not just yes. yeah, disagreement <laughs> on political issues. Is it is it genocidal though? Is my question. But I think that the other question that's being raised here by Ty is quite okay. Want to talk about truth? Mm -hmm. That is, we have um, misinformation that's being spread or biases, et cetera. But how can we do that if the faculty we're hiring are not able to think in rational terms about the conflict that is a two-sided conflict in the Middle East? Israel is fighting against armed, armed, armed militias in Gaza. Mm -hmm. It's not fighting against civilians. It's fighting militias with armaments, with missiles, with guns. 
that's different. And the problem is that too many faculty present people of Gaza and Hamas as passive victims of Israeli oppressors, because there's a tendency to think in what I consider to be juvenile toddler age categories of a good guy and a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And the good guys are Hamas and Israel is a bad guy. And I find that especially striking among my colleagues who were concerned about different aspects of oppression, let's say gender equality and sexual equality and so forth. What do they think Hamas is going to do if Hamas prevails to people who want to have a same-sex marriage or want to undergo transgender surgery, let's yeah. say? Why is this naive notion that all the oppressed people of the world have to come together and unite? I don't think a professor with tenure at an Ivy League university constitutes an oppressed person. And more than that, I have to say, what are the people in Yemen or in Sudan or in Ukraine or in Myanmar and in so many other conflict zones in Syria? What are they saying? What's the matter with these Americans? All they care about in American universities are Gazans. Why don't they care about us and what's being done to us in Yemen and Sudan and all these other places? These are the people who care about the oppressed who care about racism and aren't speaking out for black Africans in Sudan who are being murdered? Or when the secretary general of the United Nations said that the killing in Gaza is the worst killing that he's seen in all so many years, what do you think is going on in Ukraine and Syria and so forth? Uh, So what kind of rhetoric are we observing? Good question, and uh, I have a question that's been submitted uh, uh, for Talia. Uh, do you do you think that uh, Israeli policies, uh, specifically referring uh, to settlement on the West Bank, and I assume the the, the new government in Israel, uh, do you think that uh, these policies contributed at all to the support for Hamas in some way? That people are opposed to uh, what they read of this uh, Israeli government in in particular? It's a good question. Um... I don't think so, because people are not critical of the current Israeli government or its policies. People are critical of the fact that there are that the Israeli government exists. It's not the current government or the former government. It's the fact that there was an Israeli government and that Israel is currently the Jewish state. And that's why what you're seeing these clubs yell is that anti-Zionism doesn't equal anti-Semitism, because they're trying to excuse their anti-Semitism by saying that delegitimizing the state of Israel and its existence is okay. We're not arguing over policies. We're not arguing over the West Bank or Gaza or whether or not Israel pulled out in 2005. We're talking about the legitimacy of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely a double standard there because every other country in the world is able to be looked at as a legitimate state except for one. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, I have a question. uh, I'd like to hear whoever wants to answer it, answer it. In Florida, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis accused the uh, pro-Palestinian anti-Israel group Students for Justice in Palestine of being in league with Hamas, and a Florida state official ordered the chapters of the group at two state schools be deactivated. Uh, and there have been protests about that since, and counter protests. Was uh, Ken Stern was was DeSantis right to uh, to deactivate uh, students for? No, no, he wasn't. And also to add on to that, Brandeis Center and the ADL sent a letter to 
Yeah. Uh, sent to 200 college presidents a uh, letter saying, please investigate whether there's material support uh, for Hamas from SJP uh, and consider taking action. Well, the, you know, speech, as much as I deplore SJP's speech, um, is not material support. Material support is fundraising, coordination, and so forth. So, you know, what DeSantis is, did was uh, not only a violation of free speech, but also goes into the same sort of, you know, uh, promoting the binary uh, response to, you know, to a, a difficult situation. I think, remember, he also tried to, uh, or did it, encourage not teaching about gender, not teaching uh, about uh, race, uh, trying to protect students from hearing certain things. And that's, you know, getting back to your first question, that's my concern about the push of the uh, IRA definition for application to the campus too. I don't want government saying what can be taught, what can be said. I want when things that we find is disturbing uh, to teach about that and create the environment so that could be done. But when we give government the power to, to tell student groups what their politics could be just based on their expression, not on their actions. To me, that's a it's harming academic freedom and democracy itself. President, sorry, uh, if uh, I could Professor just- Professor Heschel, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I was going to say, um, this is actually something that I've been actively studying. Uh, it's also um, one of the topics of the congressional hearing that I testified at. Um, it's it's interesting that you note the financial ties that SJP may or may not have, because the founder of SJP, Hatem Bazian, also founded AMP, the American Muslims for Palestine, which is linked to the IAP, the Islamic Association for Palestine which financial wing, the Holy Land Foundation, is directly tied to Hamas. Uh, Hatem Bazian also has direct ties to Hamas. So SJP, the, the student group that we're seeing on campuses, has direct ties to a nationally recognized terrorist organization and should absolutely be kicked off of campuses. They are literally Hamas on campus. And Professor Heschel, you would agree with that? I, Throw them off campus. I agree. I really? agree with Talia, yes. And I would say that I, I also see no place at college campus for the Proud Boys or for the Ku Klux Klan or for any other white supremacist group. And uh, to me, this is similar. Uh, it's just that we're not reacting the same way. And that's what troubles me. I'd like to put something to all of you um, that uh, was said by Mark Rowan, who's the CEO of uh, Apollo Global Management. And there's a a very wealthy benefactor, or had had been until recently, of the University of Pennsylvania, his alma mater. And uh, he said on Bloomberg TV that what's at issue on campuses isn't really a challenge to free speech, but it's about the conflict between favored speech and unfavored speech, that some groups are favored, others are not, and that this is baked into the intellectual outlook of, of the university, that anything said by or about a favored group is good, and anything about an unfavored group, in this case, supporters of Israel, uh, is going to be bad. So we're not really, we don't get a, a study of the facts. Uh, we get a clash of, of perspectives and conflicting narratives. Uh, does, this, uh, does this ring true to you, Professor Heschel? Is it, uh, is, is it rowing onto something? Is, it, uh, is this a, uh, an academic, an intellectual uh, uh, tone to the American university these days? You know, I, I appreciate the support from uh, Mr. Rowan, and uh, and I do want to see change come to all the universities. But I think the problem is much deeper and won't be reached just by cutting the funding. 
The problem is the way certain ways of thinking that have developed, especially within the humanities, but also in some of the social sciences, anthropology, sociology, and so on, a certain way of analyzing problems that um, puts the political configuration at the forefront. Uh, and especially these days, ideas of colonialism. So intellectual work also becomes a form of colonialism. Uh, in this respect, I fear that the humanities is committing suicide. The humanities are being defunded at many schools already. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that's going to only increase because the humanities are at the forefront of this kind of politicization of knowledge. And as far as that goes, I also see the, the far left and the far right behaving in the same way, mirroring each other with the kind of rhetoric and dogmatism uh, that, that I hear in the shrill tone. But I, I fear that actually this is a problem that's quite deep in the ways that the different disciplines within the humanities have been functioning in recent years and producing a new generation of scholars who are very worrisome to me. Very worrisome. Very terribly worrisome. And and uh, if yes, I could add, Ken Stern, yeah, yes, so, go ahead. So, you know, I, I agree with the observation that people are trying to put complex things into binaries, you know, what Susanna was talking about, colonialism, oppressor and oppressed, white and non-white, powerful and privileged and not powerful and privileged. And, you know, that's not new in the sense if you look at, at statements about uh, Israel-Palestine going back to the Weather Underground in 1974, it reads just like an SJP statement from today about, you know, anti-imperialism, divide the world that way. So, you know, what do you, what do, you do if you're a funder? Uh, and I understand people wanting to pull their money because they don't like what's going on. But what I've been encouraging to do is, wait a minute, if the campus is really important to you, you should be investing. You should be investing so students understand the importance of academic freedom and how they should treat each other and the importance of learning and critical thinking, uh, classes on anti-Semitism, classes on how to have difficult discussions about divisive issues, whether it's this one or abortion or immigration or Trump or whatever, um, and how to really get into why we as human beings, which is the focus of hate studies, of why we get into these buckets where we're us versus them and try to reduce the world to these simplest terms. Those are the things we should be investing in as opposed to just saying we don't like this particular speech about an issue that we care about deeply and we're going to go and avoid the campus. I, I agree with you. I just am doubtful, let's say. I worry that those kinds of investigations can be carried out by the current state of the academic environment. And just as an example, University of Pennsylvania Humanities Center had a conference on Palestinian literature. There's nothing wrong with having a conference on Palestinian literature. The problem with it was that the keynote was supposed to be given by Roger Waters from a band called Pink Floyd, which first of all would cost a fortune to, to put on. I'm not sure he appeared in person or on Zoom, but what is he doing there? What is he doing at a, an academic conference? He, he's he's a uh, whatever he's there, called, just a to rock and roll Was he there to ad advocate he, for the Palestinian cause? Was he that was he there because he's a very loud BDS supporter, a very mm -hmm. anti-Israel person. That's why he was there. Now, that's not a conference on Palestinian literature. So the, the conference, the academic nature, was being subverted for a political gain by the University of Pennsylvania 
in organizing this. That was not a normal academic conference. That was a political agitprop. I'm I'm going to put uh, this. This may be the last question we got to hear from you, and I'd like to. I'll begin with uh, uh, with asking Talia because uh, you're in touch with students at other campuses. A um, a very uh, wise uh, American historian who is mostly involved in Europe and and, and lives there now uh, was in town and and uh, told me the other day that uh, she thought that all of this that we're talking about uh, it's it's basically about things happening on a dozen American campuses. Uh, that on uh, all sorts of big state university campuses all around the country, there's nothing nothing similar taking place and whatever. And I just wondered, does that ring at all true to you? Is this a problem of uh, of uh, elite coastal uh, coastal colleges and universities? Uh, Talia, what do you say? You know, Robert, I wish you were right. Um, I, re I really do wish it was just a few universities and that we were one of the only victims. Um, I actually am the Cornell Fellow for Hillel International's Israel Leadership Network Program. Essentially what that does is takes the one of the top pro-Israel leaders from every campus on the United States in the United States and puts them in touch with each other to be discussing what's going on. So we have about 200 kids in a group chat and every single day from state schools, the UCs are really, really bad, the schools in California, uh, absolutely horrific anti-Semitic events happening from every school small liberal arts schools included, UC state schools included, larger state schools included. You have acts of violence at Ohio State University. I remember the night before I testified, I got a text from one of my friends saying, hey, I don't know if you have any room left in your speech, but two kids in our uh, school just got assaulted. If you could mention that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah. I go to Cornell. He goes to Ohio State University. Those are two very different schools. And yet we're seeing the same sort of anti-Semitism, both in rhetoric and in action being taken out on both schools. Susanna Heschel? I would point out that it's not happening at Catholic colleges or at Christian evangelical colleges from what I understand. So let's just keep that in mind as well. But I don't see the passion of university presidents. I see them very bland. What we did at Dartmouth was done with the wholehearted support of the president of Dartmouth. She called, she said, I would like to have five faculty forums to discuss this dialogue. And I said, well, we've already set them up. Mm -hmm. Why didn't every university president ask faculty to set up these forums? Did they not do it because they don't have the faculty who are capable of engaging in calming dialogue? In which case, whom have they been hiring all these years? Why are they hiring these people? And, and if I could add, you know, also chaplains, I think, have a role too. Bard had, a, you know, the faculty, but also the chaplains got involved, and I thought that was a good thing. I, I don't know the answer to your question, Robert, about the, the number of campuses. I can tell you, I suspect that there are more than uh, before October 7th, where this is a burning issue. But when I documented in my book was that it's a small percentage of the 4,000 plus campuses where this is a burning issue. I was just speaking at the University of Montana. It was not a burning issue. Um, and historically, uh, and I'm sure it's changed, but historically, when I wrote about up to the year 2000, there were twice as many pro-Israel uh, programs on campus than anti-Israel ones. I think it's probably has changed now. 
given the dynamic. Um, and, you know, Talia, listen, you're, you know, you're in a group with other Hillels and not every campus has a Hillel. So it's not, a, not ubiquitous, but where it is a problem, like where you are, it's, it's significant. Um, and it's one that we should all be paying deep attention to and helping the university do better. I have one other one other question that I'm just going to put to, to Professor Heschel, since you've studied anti-Semitism in, in, in other contexts. Um, Hamas is not an obvious easy sell to to an American audience. I mean, it, it's it's a group that uh, it you know it it shut down the movie theaters in Gaza City because going to movies was not Islamic enough. But uh, in a place, I, I all my trips to Gaza about five times or so were before 2000, or last one was in 2005. It was not a place where women typically covered themselves uh, until until Hamas came in and 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 imposed that on 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 people. Why, if if you had a if you could answer in a nutshell, what what do you think uh, drives the acceptance of Hamas? Why why at this particular moment uh, would you think that a uh, very unlikely group to be embraced by uh, by American students? seems to to have some some support in a word why why so i would say first of all very few members of the american of american society or the university know much about hamas really don't and i find that's true in many cases that when some years ago the mla modern language association wanted to have a bds uh platforms people were signing it and i would talk to them uh, and it turns out they didn't know anything. They didn't know what they were talking about. They don't know anything about Israel. They, their friends signed it. It seemed to be yeah. something justice to it. I think the mood has changed now. With Hamas, it's a kind of thrill. It's outrageous to, to support Hamas, to be demonstrating with a lot of passion in the students. Uh, and I think perhaps some of that passion may be a, a sense of finally COVID is over. So let's just take out all of our rage. Um, but why focus on Jews? Because Jews are the convenient target for rage, for anger, for disgust, and so forth. So, but there are, I think, probably some additional psychological factors in American society right now that we may not recognize for a while to come. I would say from the Jewish side, First of all, this whole discussion about the statements issued by presidents, I think, is a displacement. Everybody mm -hmm. was horrified and shocked. We focused on statements, which are ultimately meaningless. Mm -hmm. We were mm -hmm. focusing on that perhaps because we were so terrified and upset by the, the October 7th terrorist attacks. That's why we focused somehow. It, it, it just was a distraction. But uh, also, I have to say, I'm, I, I was horrified. We were all horrified that Jews were attacked and in such a vicious horrific way. If something like that, and I can tell you those faculty supporting Hamas right now, they would, would be outraged if they talked about the Tulsa race riots when yeah. they this middle-class Black community of Tulsa, Oklahoma was suddenly attacked in what was a horrific riot on the part of white people, just completely destructive. So what, what, what's what's the difference here? Why are the people who were so outraged by racist attacks yeah. in America and not outraged by the terrorist attack there? And that's because there's been a buildup for years and years and years of anger at Israel for refusing to allow a Palestinian state for the occupation and so on. The entire rhetoric of that has now built to a crescendo. So it's no longer about 1967. And that occupation is about 1948, and Israel should just 
be wiped out. Now, there are so many things horrific about that, we can't enumerate, but the, it's, I would say, the affect, the emotion, the passion, the rage right now that's terrifying to me in the United States at universities from students, but who, look, students are 18, 20, mm-hmm. but from professors. And let's remember that these elite universities, well, perhaps these are the people, these universities are producing the next generation of professors. So, of yeah. course, we're worried about the elite universities. And we should be. Well, thanks to all three of you for taking part uh, in this enlightening uh, uh, hour. Professor Susanna Heschel of Dartmouth, uh, uh, Talia Dror of Cornell. Good luck uh, after graduation uh, uh, soon. Uh, and Kenneth Stern of, uh, of the Bard Center in the Study of Hate. Um, many thanks to Joshua Plout, Ronnie Givigliano, and Ryan Sutton from American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, and also to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Thank you to our program sponsor, the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3, a national charitable organization representing in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva, in greater Tel Aviv. The website is www.afrmc.org. Join us for next month's uh, program, Growing Up With Social Media, Uh, At this time, uh, when Israel and Hamas are at war, by the way, uh, we'd like you to please consider making a donation to AFRMC's Emergency Medical Relief Fund. It's to help the hospital uh, in Israel as it treats countless wartime casualties. Uh, You can donate online at www.afrmc.org. I'm Robert Siegel. This has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. 